done. If he's going to be around for a year like Suga has been, um, what's the point? Okay, William. Well, we shall wait with bated breath the outcome of this and talk to you more about it fairly soon. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And a lot of volatility in the markets this morning. Over in Australia, first of all, the ASX 200 is off about half a percent. Uh, in Japan, the Nikkei 225 is playing catch-up after being closed yesterday, down 2%. Futures markets indicating another 200 points off the Hang Seng at the open this morning. That's about 0.8% down. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil is strengthening. It's at $74.41 a barrel. Gold is down slightly at $1,764 an ounce. And I shall be back tomorrow morning with more money talk for you at 8 o'clock. But in the meantime, sorry, I won't be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. It's, of course, a public holiday uh, tomorrow. I will be here, though, uh, from 6 to 10 on Radio 3 with a special holiday show. Got plenty of music, chat and guests. So please do join me for that. Money Talk will return on Thursday, coming up after the news back chat with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods, isolated showers and thunderstorms, very hot during the day. The very hot weather warning is in force. And then the outlook is for sunny intervals and isolated showers on the day following the mid-autumn festival and cloudier with a few showers in the latter part of this week. It's 29 degrees right now, 82% relative humidity. 8.31 and a half, here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. The doctor in charge of the Kunshung Vaccination Centre in Jordan says expanding the walk-in scheme to cover everyone aged 12 and above should lead to a higher vaccine take-up rate. From tomorrow, people can walk in to get a Covid jab at 21 community vaccination centres without a booking. Dr Samuel Kwok said the capacity of his centre was 2,000 a day, but fewer than 1,000 people were turning up for inoculation. He also said the government had approached him about the possibility of forming mobile vaccination outreach teams. The government is thinking of outreach programs and our vaccination centre has been invited to think about forming teams, mobile vaccination units to do outreach in estates, in places, uh, in shopping malls, things like that. So we're thinking about uh, in that direction, trying to help people who who don't really have to leave where they live to go to centres and just have the jabs very, very nearby and convenient for them. Overseas, the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres says he has heard encouraging indications from rich countries that they're willing to help fund the previously agreed annual sum of $100 billion US dollars to help developing countries tackle climate change. Opening a meeting in New York, Mr Guterres urged the international community to work together. It would be easy to lose hope but we are not hopeless or helpless. We have a path to recovery if we choose to take it. That's what this is all about. Coming together, coming together to save our planet and each other. Mr Guterres told reporters that although there were positive signs, the commitment was not there yet. The United States has announced plans to ease tough air travel restrictions imposed 18 months ago to try to control the pandemic. Fully vaccinated travellers from Brazil, China, India and many European nations will be able to board flights from early November. Covid testing and contact tracing will be needed, but not quarantining. The European Union's ambassador to the US, Stavros Lambrinidis, welcomed the move. I think uh, it became increasingly untenable uh, in the US uh, context to be able to justify banning 
hundreds of millions of Europeans, business people, families from coming to this country. And certainly from uh, Brussels, the uh, constant contacts on this issue at all different levels played a difference as well. So I think that the heat started going up in the travel ban kitchen. And finally, Canadians are voting for the second time in less than two years to elect a new government. The Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, called the snap vote, hoping to capitalise on overseeing the COVID-19 vaccine programme. Polls are due to close in the next two hours. More news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On this morning's programme, we're looking at uh, legal moves to combat child abuse. The Welfare Secretary, Lord Chi Kwong, has spoken in support of a proposal from the Law Reform Commission to create a new criminal offence targeting people who fail to protect children at risk from abuse. A subcommittee launched a public consultation exercise in 2019 and has now put forward its recommendations, which also cover protection for the elderly and people with disabilities. Anyone failing to take action to protect the vulnerable, such as making a report to the police, could face a lengthy prison term if the victim suffers serious harm or dies. The law would cover anyone who has a duty of care, including members of the same household, relatives, domestic helpers, social workers and teachers. And after 9.15, as we prepare to celebrate the Mid-Autumn Festival, we'll take a look at illegal parking as the police warn drivers who park where they're not supposed to that their vehicles could get multiple parking tickets. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Joining us this morning for our main topic, we have uh, in our Admiralty studio uh, Samantha Gershon, who's a family lawyer and partner in the Hong Kong family team at the law firm with us. Good morning to you. And also on the line, um, Amanda Whitford, uh, Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong's uh, Faculty of Law and also uh, the chairperson of the subcommittee that looked into this issue. And uh, on the line, uh, Dr Patrick Chung, uh, Chairman of Against Child Abuse. Um, good morning to you all. Perhaps, um, uh, Amanda Whitford, if, if we could start with you. Uh, as I say, you are the chair of the subcommittee which uh, examined this whole issue and uh, recommended this uh, new offence of failure to protect. Um, you've had the uh, backing of the Welfare Secretary. Um, how soon now would you expect uh, movement on seeing these proposals put into law? Um, well, that's a matter for the government, so I, I couldn't tell you how quickly it will happen, but I expect that it probably will happen. There's been a lot of support for it. Mm. Uh, because it has been, the, the idea has been around for a long time, hasn't it? I mean, before your uh, subcommittee launched the consultation. Um, yes, there is. There was a law that came in uh, in 2004 um, in England, then 2005 in South Australia, and 2011 in New Zealand. But I can tell you, I've been working on this since before I was pregnant with my daughter, who's about to turn 12. So right. over yes. a very long period of time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how different is our, our, um, our local version um, if this is enacted, uh, you know, as compared to um, the New Zealand and Australia ones? Well, our version, I believe, um, and I'm probably biased, is the best version because we had the advantage of being able to look at what worked and didn't work in the other countries. 
Um, um, okay, uh, Samantha Gershon, um, w what do you think? Is is this the you, you support this idea? This is the way to go. Well, yes. I mean, it's a long time coming. Um, we know we had that recent unfortunate child abuse case where the five-year-old girl died with you know over 130 wounds on her body. I mean, that really shocked everybody, yeah. and that showed clearly that we have a lack of preventative measures. Um, in Hong Kong, but you know we we don't need a tragedy like that to act as a catalyst for reforms. And so it's a very unfortunate that you know we don't have a law in Hong Kong. So it's something that is very much needed here. So the way that these proposals are framed, uh, you think that uh, th uh, that would uh, you know go a long way to solving the problem? Well, it, it's a start. Mm. Um, it's something that's needed. Mm. Mm. Um, I, uh, I actually am not, um, you know, fully uh, aware of the details of the five-year-old case. I, I've heard about it, of course, but um, was there a problem in identifying which of you did it um, in that case? I don't know the full details, but I know that a jury found a father and a stepmother guilty of murdering the five-year-old um, daughter in that case. Uh, and the step, I think it's the step grandmother had failed to intervene in the case. So, uh, yeah, so Amanda Whitford, so this would put the onus on family members, on social workers, or on, on teachers. Um, um, I mean, I mean, um, how could we be sure that, uh, you know, maybe abuse might have been going on which wasn't necessarily obvious? Um, uh, how's it going to work? Well, it's got to be uh, either death or very serious harm to trigger this particular uh, provision. So we're not talking about uh, non-trivial, sorry, non-serious harm. Uh, we're talking about harm that has resulted in um, something that, that is causing a great deal of... of uh, of, or, or, something that has caused a death or a very serious injury, and that could include a psychological injury. So what we're talking about is a situation where a defendant, in all of the circumstances, should have been aware that there was a risk of this kind of very serious harm. So it's not, as you're suggesting, a situation where there is... Um, really nothing for anybody to be concerned about as far as uh, this particular offence is concerned, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be concerned about other offences like simple assault or, or um, some of the other provisions that we have under the law, but this particular provision only kicks in when you're talking about really serious harm. Uh, so, in other words, uh, it would be obvious that the victim was suffering serious harm? Yes, it, well, it should be. It would only kick in when you're in a situation where the uh, person who is being held accountable um, should have been aware from the circumstances that they were in and the situation is so serious that it's appropriate to hold them responsible under the criminal law. Because you also talk about uh, psychological or psychiatric harm as well, um, yeah. which, which, which may not on the surface be quite so clear if somebody's been uh, psychologically abused, for instance. Uh, it may, or, but, but what we were really thinking about when we put that particular provision in was sexual abuse. You're not necessarily going to see signs of sexual abuse, are you? But a child may be showing very clear signs of psychological harm as a result of sexual abuse. Mm.
Um, now, you, you talk about uh, uh, people with a duty of care. Um, that would include, um, as well as uh, family members, relatives, uh, domestic helpers as well. So would there, there would be uh, an obligation on domestic helpers, uh, many of whom spend a great deal of time uh, taking care of children or, or, or elderly people. Um, so they would also have to uh, report, make a report uh, if, you know, if they suspected that abuse was taking place. Not, not just abuse. Let's be very careful with our language here. We're talking about very serious abuse. Right. So abuse that's likely to escalate into either the child's death or the child being very seriously injured and unable to tell you who injured them. So think about what that kind of serious harm must be before you've got a child that can't tell you what happened. And, and this duty of care also extends to social workers and teachers. Yes, it so, so for, for example, how, how could the teacher, well, if it's a physical um, injury um, and wounds, um, it's quite obvious that the teacher should be alerted and probably talk to the headmaster and perhaps reporting to the police. But, you know, how, you know what about psychological wounds? That, that would be a difficult. Well, again, we go back to the language of the offence. Uh, you would have to have a situation where the defendant knew or had reasonable grounds to believe that there was serious risk of harm to the victim. Now, if there are no signs and the child is not telling anybody, how could the law possibly, beyond reasonable doubt, prove that the defendant knew or had reasonable grounds to believe? Mm -hmm. uh, we're also joined uh, on the line by Patrick Jung, uh, Chairman of Against Child Abuse. Good morning to you. Hey, good morning. So uh, recently on our Hashtag Hong Kong programme, um, you spoke about the fact that uh, calls to your organisation's child helpline had doubled during the pandemic. Um, do you think there is therefore uh, more of an urgency to see these proposals passed into law? We've been talking about them for, for a long, long time now. I think, um, I think um, the, uh, the, uh, this report... Uh, released by the Law Reform uh, Commission has been uh, long-awaited. It takes uh, into consideration the child's best, in best interest. Mm. And uh, I, I knew there are over 100 submissions for, uh, uh, to give uh, opinions on this uh, uh, offence. And uh, I think the final report has addressed a lot of uh, uncertainties and uh, concerns from various parties. But uh, once again, child's best interest takes priority. And the report reminds members of the society that uh, child protection is a res responsibility shared by all of us. And uh, this uh, offence um, uh, legislation offers a higher degree of protection in situations where the young children are not able to speak or fend for themselves. And it offers incentives for early prevention and intervention before tragedies happen. Now, the COVID, the COVID, uh, the impact of the COVID on child abuse uh, is another issue. We see a rising cases, uh, especially uh, this year, after the school resumes, you know, face-to-face -face, uh, uh, teaching. Uh, in the first six months, uh, you, if you get the statistics from the social welfare department, there are 650-something reported cases. And then if you extrapolate into the annual incidence, it will be 1,300-something. And the maximum 
the highest number of child abuse cases in the past year was 2018. We have about 1,000, and then and then in another year was 2,000. 1,064 in 2018 and 2019, 1,006. So, you know, we are seeing a lot of cases during the COVID period where there is only Zoom teaching and the children are housebound and a lot of friction in the family. So a lot of abuse cases are hidden. And it is only when children come into contact with social workers, teachers, that these situations are being picked up and identified and being managed. So, um, so uh, there are two different issues. So, uh, our organization, uh, back to the uh, this offense, we support and we, we really welcome uh, uh, this report. So, we hope the government will accept it, the recommendation and fast track it and through the procedures and have the law enacted. Um, Dr. Chang, um, uh, one question on on the COVID cases, on the um, on the more on the, you know the uh, amounts of the uh, child abuse cases. What what were those um, cases like? Were there you know physical injuries or, or other forms of abuse? Yes, if you look uh, if you look into the statistics over the years, the majority are physical abuse. It accounts for about forty fifty percent, and. Um, and the uh, sexual abuse accounts for about one third of the uh, cases, and the rest are uh, child neglect and uh, psychological abuse. Uh, yes. So uh, uh, in the COVID period, it's, uh, uh, after the school resumes, the numbers are very similar. The patterns are very similar. But this offence we are talking about, this offence is sort of specifically targeting at the serious ones, the ones leading to death and serious harm. So let's let's say, for example, you know this um, um, this bill is passed, and um, and uh, we have this new uh, legislation. Um, then you know the social workers and the um, teachers or the um, household members would have a duty to um, report what they see um, to the authorities, or you know what what should their action be like? Um, yes. Uh, otherwise, they they will sort of become the, um, you know, the bystander who has failed to protect, right? Yes. If, if you look... Um, uh, perhaps yeah. I could answer that. Yes, please, um, Professor Whitford. Amanda Whitford. Uh, well, the, it would depend on the situation, of course. Um, there are many different examples of what reasonable steps a carer could take. Uh, perhaps reporting suspicions of abuse to the manager of the institution, if it's, for example, a elderly home or a school, um, or uh, contacting the police, uh, contacting social services or child welfare NGOs, contacting other family members who are more senior in the family and more likely to be able to take control of the situation, um, or perhaps something pragmatic like seeking prompt medical attention for the child. Uh, uh, okay, um, Samantha Gershon. Um, so, uh, so this uh, proposed offence of failure to, to protect it's uh, based on models from uh, South Australia, England, and New Zealand. Um, what do we know about the experience uh, of those places in uh, introducing 
uh, and monitoring uh, this offence? It's, they've worked well um, and it's been going on for a, a number of years uh, and they have very good child protection policies and we're, we're far behind. Um, so this is something that we have needed to, to bring in and to bring us up to date. Um, and and so, um, have, have there been have, have they experienced any problems in? Yeah? I, I, I'm I'm not sure, but um, as I said, they are. It's fortunate for us that by having their experiences, that we've been able to do the we best. Can, we can learn from them, and that. we can learn from them. Yes. Yeah. Mm, mm, yeah. yeah. Um, but okay. were, were there cases where, let's say? Um, uh, uh, a domestic helper um, was uh, sort of a prosecutor because he or she uh, was only a bystander um, and did not do enough to protect um, the victim. Uh, not in those other countries, there were not, um, because remember, they have a different system sure, to us. Sure. Um, however, I think it's important that you recognise that this is not just an offence to protect children. It's an offence to protect vulnerable persons. So in certain situations, and I um, could use the example of Ariana, the Indonesian maid, in the case in 2014, then domestic helpers could be the vulnerable persons that are protected under this new legislation. Uh, okay, uh, we have an email from a, from a listener, Guy, who says uh, some good news for a change and thank you for your initiative. Uh, can you advise what training and guidance exists or is planned for all concerned parties on how to identify and deal with suspected child or adult abuse? The police must be included as children coming to their attention for errant behaviour can often have an abusive cause. Uh, uh, um, Patrick Chung, you were saying earlier that everybody has a responsibility to, to safeguard uh, children and the vulnerable. Um, so, um, what, what sort of, tr I mean, do we, do we all need training and guidance? Uh, yes, uh, yes, of course, with the, uh, if, the, if this new law come into, um, uh, come in, uh, into uh, place, uh, before that, we need to uh, uh, have uh, uh, training for the, especially for the frontline workers, uh, social workers, uh, the teachers, and uh, childcare institutes uh, uh, people, as to you know how to uh, identify abuses and how to report or, or ask for ask for help. Um, uh, this, as I know, uh, uh, is an ongoing process. The social welfare department has a. Uh, uh, education branch and the healthcare sectors like the hospitals, we have um, uh, uh, mandatory training, for example, mandatory training in uh, child protection for the doctors, especially pediatricians, and uh, there are also uh, uh, courses for the nurses. And uh, yes, so this needs to be updated uh, before uh, full implementation. Amanda Whitford, is this going to require a change in sort of public mindset, if you like, whereas uh, you know everybody just has to keep their eyes open and be more alert? I mean, I mean, you, you say that uh, we're talking about sort of cases of serious abuse, which uh, will probably, you know, in most cases, be very obvious. But um, uh, are, are we all going to have to be more alert? Yes, we should be more alert. Yes, 
more alert to what kind of society yeah. do we live in where we're not alert yeah. to yeah. the way that children and vulnerable people are being yeah. treated uh, in situations where they can't protect themselves. Yes, but in all, yeah, sorry, Dr. Chan. In order for this to be, um, uh, you know, an effective uh, preventative offence and a proactive offence, I guess um, the government will have to launch, um, you know, a, a bigger sort of public education campaign instead of um, just having a, a, a quite a small unit at the SWD uh, to do the work. Um, would you say so? Yeah. Uh, certainly, if, if people need to be educated, that they have a responsibility. If they, if they don't, if they're not already aware that they do have a responsibility, and in many cases they already do. And um, people that work in hospitals, people that work in schools, people that work uh, in situations where um, that have institutional care for for young people and for vulnerable people already have a duty of care under the law. This is not something new. Uh, parents already have a responsibility for children. Um, those who voluntarily take on the care of other people may have a duty under the common law, if not a statutory duty. So again, this is not new. Um, so what you're talking about is educating people as to responsibilities they probably already have, uh, and then pointing out that a reason to comply with them is that they potentially place themselves, if they are aware of an appreciable risk of serious harm to a person that they have access and control to on a regular basis, then they should take steps to report it. Hmm. Uh, okay. Um, Samantha Gershon, uh, so apparently the, the, the Law Society suggested that uh, maybe instead of enacting the proposed offence, it might be better to amend Section 27 of the Offences Against the, the Person Ordinance. Um, what do you think about that? Uh, it was that the, the idea, in fact, was um, it was turned down uh, by... Uh, by the review body, uh, by uh, the uh, uh, um, you know, as a result of the consultation, because uh, it was considered that uh, changing section 27 would not adequately address the problem of which of you did it, which is uh, the question that occurs in these cases where it's not obvious who was the perpetrator. You have any thoughts about that? Yeah, because they wanted it to be widened so mm. that. Mm. Um, it, it's whether it's allowed someone to be charged, whether they caused the serious harm to them or whether they stood, effectively stood by and allowed the harm to happen without taking those reasonable steps to prevent it. Um, of, of course, that, that makes sense. And, um, you know, as Amanda said, you know, if they're, they're already aware there's a reasonable standard of care. So if, they're, if it's a professional they're fulfilling their professional standard of care, you know, they shouldn't be liable under the offence. Um, you know, they should be protecting children, they should be protecting those vulnerable people already. Um, so mm. it, should, it should be fine under that offence. Mm. I don't think there's a problem. Perhaps I could chip in as to why we rejected the Law Society's yeah. suggestion. Remember yes, that a key feature of this new type of offence is that the prosecutor does not need to prove which role a suspect played in the harm inflicted. So whether they were the perpetrator, the person who inflicted the direct harm, or whether they were the culpable bystander who 
who stood by turned a blind eye and uh, ignored the process of abuse that was happening to the child. If you are charging a person under Section 27 of the Offences Against the Person Act, they, you are charging the perpetrator. In this case, you are charging the perpetrator and or the culpable bystander, and you need not be sure which of them it was. So it has an entirely different focus. The, uh, the culpable bystander would be uh, liable to a maximum penalty of uh, up to 20 years if the, vi if the victim died as a result, yes. um, and up to 15 years if they suffered uh, serious harm. Um, how, how does that compare with what the actual uh, perpetrator uh, may uh, be sentenced to? Well, if the perpetrator um, kills the victim, then he is liable in Hong Kong to imprisonment for life. Mm. So you would, you would say that these uh, these maximum penalties are, are proportionate? Yes, absolutely. Mm. We mm. took a long time trying to determine what the appropriate penalties should be. Mm. And mm. we looked at what the substantive offences would be if the uh, defendant was the perpetrator and what an appropriate penalty should be for a culpable bystander or perhaps even the perpetrator. And think of a situation where you've got a baby that has mm. died whilst it's been in the care of two or more people. Yeah. And the forensic uh, evidence is unable to ascertain who it was that would have had access to that baby. OK, sorry, um, got to interrupt you there. Let, let, let's pick this up again after nine o'clock because we've Certainly. got a break. We've got a break for the news summary. Uh, we'll be back at three minutes past nine. A uh, quick look at the weather. Uh, sunny periods, uh, isolated showers and thunderstorms, very hot during the day. The outlook, uh, sunny intervals and isolated showers on the day following the mid-autumn festival is currently 30 degrees, humidity 78%. <laughs> And welcome back to Back Chat uh, with Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And this morning, in our main topic, uh, we're talking about uh, legal moves to combat uh, abuse of children and other uh, vulnerable people. Um, we have uh, uh, various guests uh, with us uh, at the moment, um, including uh, Amanda Whitford, who is uh, who was uh, chaired the subcommittee which looked into this issue uh, put forward by uh, the Law Reform Commission. Amanda Whitford is Associate Professor of Hong Kong University's uh, uh, Faculty of Law. Sorry, we interrupted you um, just before the nine o'clock news. You were talking about the case of, of a couple with a baby. Going to suggest that in such a case, it is possible for the uh, situation to be that the forensic evidence is unable to be certain which of the two of them is the one that inflicted the blow that killed the baby. Uh, if the child, however, is, has, is showing from marks on its body, perhaps cigarette burns and such, that this child has old burns. This child has been subjected to abuse over a very long period of time. Then it may be an appropriate action to take if both of the parents refuse to answer police questions under their right to silence to charge them both under this new offence. Hmm. 
Okay. Uh, another email from this from S says that one of your guests suggested uh, a family member can take charge, but when the situation is already tense, how can a family member take charge? An ordinary person is not pr properly trained to take charge. Um, I don't know. I, I guess that obviously depends on the circumstances. Uh, but uh, uh, we're, we're also joined on the line by um, Eni Listari, who's a chairwoman of the International Migrants Alliance. Hello. Hello. Hi. Well, good morning. Thanks for joining the programme. Uh, so, um, under this, uh, these legal proposals, um, uh, people with a, a, a duty of care uh, would all... Um, uh, have to be uh, subject, possibly, if they, if they fail to protect uh, um, people who are victims of serious abuse uh, by reporting it, um, uh, would be subject to the law. And these include uh, uh, relatives, um, also domestic helpers. Um, d do you have any concerns about that? Yeah, well, uh, we also have those concerns. Although we welcome uh, the, the, you know, the legal proposal in order to protect the children uh, in Hong Kong. However, the position of the foreign domestic helper is quite different with other uh, relatives or even you know, social workers in the future. We are dependent to the employer's house. We are responsible by employer to uh, live in with them and we are fed by them. So even a little move, uh, you know, like, you're not even reporting anything to authority, even this little move that the employer are happy, the bigger consequences will be being terminated and sent back home. So uh, I don't know how uh, how effective this policy will be when it comes to uh, domestic helper. And, and also in addition to that, uh, the position of domestic helper is also very vulnerable. Uh, we know that you know some of the domestic helper also witness the abuse, but then the question is what can they do? Even if they want to lend help, uh, you know, sometimes they also get beaten, especially when the family member is very abusive, for example. So this is this kind of concern that the Hong Kong government must address. If they really want a cooperation of domestic worker in this aspect, they should create flexibility in terms of us changing to another employer, you know, without leaving Hong Kong, so we don't have to pay again another agency to just to come back to Hong Kong. Okay. I think uh, that will be giving, you know, encouragement for Okay. Okay. Uh, Eni Lestari, it's not a very good connection. I think we're going to try again. We're going to try again to get you back. But in the meantime, uh, let's put that to uh, Amanda Whitford. Um, so domestic helpers are in a rather different position from uh, from everybody else, and they are uh, to some extent um, uh, vulnerable to the uh, attitudes of their employers. Yes, of course. This is something that we took into account naturally um, we were thinking about what uh, is reasonable in all the circumstances to ask people who are witnesses to very serious child abuse or the risk of very serious harm to do now to to exclude domestic helpers who are members of households um, when you make other people who are members of the households responsible didn't seem to be uh, a sensible way to, to approach the legislation. But at the same time, there are caveats to ensure that domestic helpers' um, situation is taken into account. The legislation states that you have to fail to take reasonable steps in all of the circumstances. What were the circumstances in which the domestic helper found herself 
Um, for example, if I can give you an example from overseas, that, that may, may help to illustrate. Uh, if you are a woman who is being abused by your husband and it um, therefore is difficult for you to take what uh, a woman who wasn't being abused would regard as reasonable steps, then that would be taken into account by the court in determining whether you had acted and done what you could in all of the circumstances and, of course, by the prosecuting authorities in considering whether to prosecute you at all. Uh, you may be a person who's not prosecuted on the basis that in all of the circumstances it wasn't reasonable to expect you to do anything more than what you did, perhaps tend to the child's injuries, for example. Um, so, so, so in in the case you just mentioned, I, I guess uh, just assuming there, there's a maid in the household, and the maid saw how the wife uh, has been abused by the husband, and the maid did nothing. So, um, would that um, you know be well? Would that be no? Liable? Because a, a, a wife um, generally, uh, an adult woman, would not necess- would not fall into this category. We're talking about children or vulnerable persons. I mean, unless okay, the wife sorry, has yes. some kind of so vulnerable... So what, what about uh, the, an old mother uh, of the household yes. uh, being abused yes. by the sons and daughters? Yes. Uh, yes, that would be a situation no different to a child where you would expect those living within the household, which includes the maid, those living within the household, to make a report. But as I said, there is subtlety to this. It, it, is a, it takes into account the circumstances in which the maid finds herself. Um, Any Lestari, are you uh, assured by uh, what uh, Amanda Whitford had to say? Yeah, well, uh, I can say that, again, the situation in our part is, is really complicated. We are part of the household, but we are not part of the household. We are not really born in that family. We are employed in the temporary basis of two years contract, but then at any given time, we could be terminated and sent back home. And I think this is the reason why a lot of the domestic workers are already in the disempowered situation to even cope up with the situation because they themselves are coming here for employment. They are really wanting to earn money so they can have their own children back home. So when they, uh, are in that, when they are at that kind of situation, it's also a very difficult position on how to, to protect the children. Instinctly, because most of us are women, we are really care, uh, you know, uh, for the children, the welfare of the children. Many of us are really close and bonded and so forth. But then again, uh, you know, like, uh, if we are going to be asked by the government to report any abuse, then the question I'm asking is what kind of guarantee the government will provide to us so that we will be able to continue earning income, you know, while helping the children in Hong Kong who are facing abuse like this? It's a question. And up to now, I think, so far, the Hong Kong government are not very cooperative when it comes to legal reform, especially when it comes to immigration policies. We are already asking even during the pandemic, those who lose the job, let them work and let them stay. But the Hong Kong government continued to send them to send them back home, giving a lot of excuse and justification that, you know, we are not entitled to stay if we are the one losing the job before two years contract. Now, in this kind of situation, it is not even our issue. You know, we are not the one causing this kind of abuse, but we witness that kind of abuse. And yet, what about if that person is the one who signed our contract? 
wat moet happen to us. I think this is anders the Hong Kong government is really creating a mechanism and flexibility to help us being part of this uh, new proposal, then, you know, it's very, it's going to be, it's not going to be effective just to take us, to put us in that kind of responsible position, you know, uh, just because we are, you know, live within the employer household. And again, we are, we have been questioning for the longest time, give an option to live out for domestic helper. We are also suffering inside the employer house. We also want to have a seat, but they don't give us. Now suddenly, because by nature we are forced to live in, we are equally accountable to this kind of treatment, which has become another unfair treatment. We are already a victim of policy. Now we are again victim, being victimized by the new legislation because we are asked to be equally accountable to our, you know, compared with other family members in the household. So I think this is the part that I don't find it fair, and yet it's very unclear how it's going to be, uh, you know, helping us, the domestic worker, to even continue earning, earning income with the new legislation. Uh, Amanda Whitford, is there any special legal protection that could be offered to uh, domestic helpers? Well, I think that um, your, your guest has... Uh, identified a lot of issues that, that should be being recognised by the government at this time and, and need um, a more holistic approach. Mm. Um, Samantha Gershon, um, um, how, how about any Lestari's point there that uh, domestic workers are in a rather difficult, rather different situation from uh, most other people? Hello? Amanda said, yeah. uh, um, it, you know, it's highlighted um, the difficulties that they do face. Um, w w one thing that um, was mentioned, I, I, I do believe that if domestic helpers lived out, I don't think that would solve the problem, because if they are caring um, for, you know, a child or a vulnerable person in a family, I think that would still apply whether they lived in or, or lived out. Uh, because they would still be there you know, all the time with the family. Um, it would just be during the day, just not overnight. Um, but, you know, for domestic helpers, you know, they are in a difficult um, situation. They, they really are. It does place them in that. Mm. Um, we have linked this uh, new offence uh, a lot uh, with child abuse. Um, uh, how, how about uh, vulnerable persons, uh, Samantha Gershon, um, in, in the other parts of the world, you know, with this similar legislation, has this been uh, successful in um, prosecuting um, those who have not, have uh, seriously abused uh, vulnerable persons, like old people? Yes, I mean, it, it's a, a natural thing and, it, and it's a law that's always always happens i mean vulnerable people are encompassed within the laws or in other countries okay um so uh any lestari um any any further thoughts from you yeah uh, i think just want to uh, respond to uh about the leave out i don't say leave out is actually solving the problem it's two different problems between you know a child that is abused and us leave out the only issue why I'm saying about the leave out is also to lessen the vulnerability of domestic uh, helper inside the employer houses, where we have more privacy, and yet we will also have social network to seek uh, help, you know, whenever we need, you know, because we will stay with other people whom we can talk to and, you know, like what to do with this kind of situation. But in this kind of setup, we are isolated within employer house, 24-hour Six, you know, 24 hours a day and six days a week, 
and we only meet until on Sunday. That even you know, even that on Sunday we only leave at our house by eight or nine o'clock, and then we have to come back by six or seven. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to do a lot of things on Sunday, and we will not be able to even you know consult. And this kind of uh, new legislation is very new for us. We usually ask people when we are ourselves are being abused, you know, what to do. But then if this is an abuse by another family member within the house, we need to know whom to ask. So they ask us for water and also language issues. Will the government provide all this kind of facility whom we can call, whom we can meet on Sunday? Even up to now, we are asking the Labor Department to open their office on Sunday so that this domestic helper can also approach in person when they need help. But the government refused. Now, suddenly there is no legislation putting us in that kind of complicated situation, and yet there is no mechanism and guarantee for any kind of benefit that we will be receiving for helping, uh, you know, Hong Kong government and Hong Kong society. So that's the reason why I say this is going to be very unfair and that will not be effective, and yet it will double the demands the domestic helper ourselves. Uh, so, uh, Amanda Whitford, so you would say uh, addressing uh, any Lestari's concerns, are, uh, that, that would be something for uh, other areas of, uh, of government to do and not for this, not for this um, uh, report from the Law Reform Commission? No, I think this is something that, as I said, requires a, a holistic approach from many departments within government and, and obviously um, many of the issues that, that, that she is rightly concerned about were outside the purview of this particular report. All right, right, okay. Well, uh, thank you very much for speaking to us on the programme this morning. Uh, uh, thanks to our guests. Uh, uh, thanks to Amanda Whitford, who you just heard there, who's an associate professor at uh, the University of Hong Kong's uh, Faculty of Law. Uh, thanks to uh, Samantha Gershon, who's uh, a family lawyer and partner in the Hong Kong family team at the law firm with us. Uh, thanks to Eni Lestari, uh, who you heard just now, who's the chairwoman of the International Migrants Alliance. And before nine o'clock, we heard from uh, Patrick Chung, uh, chairman of Against Child Abuse. Uh, thanks to you all. Um, and for the last uh, ten minutes or so of this morning's programme, we're going to turn our attention to another issue because uh, uh, drivers who park uh, illegally uh, during the mid-autumn festival uh, could find themselves uh, receiving uh, multiple parking tickets. Um, that's uh, a warning from the police in, uh, in Western District uh, who've launched a, a four-day operation against illegal parking and other traffic offences, including uh, uh, stopping or waiting at restricted zones. And the operation will target uh, trouble spots, including uh, uh, Aberdeen Centre, Shumwan Road and Kennedy Town. And we're joined uh, in the studio uh, now, in our Admiralty studio, by James uh, Ockenden, founder and editor of Transit Jam and producer of the radio programme at Wam Bam Tram. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks so, for having me. So, so um, multiple parking tickets. Actually, I know, I know this, this actually happened to one of our presenters. But uh, um, is this going to make a difference against, uh, Ill, you know, to stop illegal parking? Well, no, I don't think so at all. It, the police talk about multiple tickets a lot. And I'm actually surprised to hear you're, you're the first person I've heard who, who has knowledge of one of this actually happening. Right. Um, we had a gentleman 
contact me from Taiwan who had these uh, car workshops taking over the pavement and road around his his office building and the police promised to do double ticketing and the tickets went up from nine tickets a week on that whole block to ten and a half so you know they basically gave one more ticket over the week and and really not enough and you know as for as for the mid-autumn festival you know and Aberdeen operations we hear this every year there, there there's two things different this year um firstly we've got the water world opening up now they've banned cars which was a very interesting move so perhaps we'll see we're going to surely see some traffic congestion and some issues around that um, and secondly, we have seen the police actually have had some teeth lately. I have to be fair to them. The new uh, chief of traffic police, Damon Au, does seem to have found the right levers to pull. And he's given uh, 3.3 million tickets, uh, on track to give 3.3 million tickets in 2021. That's double 2019. Um, so it's nowhere near enough. It's not an effective strategy, in my view, just to, just to throw these tickets out wildly. But it does show the police are at least having a bit more aggression on this issue now. Do, do you think they, you know, there are more people doing it now? I, I really see that though. They, they have these uh, new machines which uh, makes uh, giving tickets really easy. It's just like a little Polaroid. Yeah. And, and so it's, um, it's very, very quick. You know, in the past they have to write down the whole ticket. Yeah, the machines are quick. Um, the, the, the best thing about the machines is the back end. It actually hugely improves the back end and makes it more efficient. There's less mistakes. So as before, the handwritten uh, tickets, there were, you know, I can't remember the percentage, but a high percentage were just lost because of poor handwriting. And now the back end is very smooth. And the wardens, it took them a while to get used to the machines and they were actually slower to start with. But now, yes, they're getting the hang of it. They're being very aggressive. They're doing these mass ticket drives. And it's becoming, it's becoming quite effective, but still not going to solve the problem. Tickets will not solve the problem. What do, what do they do? I mean, do they dish out like five tickets all in one go? I mean, I, I have seen a picture on Facebook of uh, five, I think five parking tickets under the same set of windscreen wipers or, or do they sort of put, leave a ticket, go away, come back 10 minutes later, put no, another one? There's a time limit. So I think the time limit is around two hours and in some black spots they'll reduce it to half an hour so they can ticket every half hour. But as I said, I think that's quite rare. Um, and, and you might see the occasional one on social media, but out in the field, people I've spoken to, you know, this is a very rare beast, a multiple ticket. Do, do we know where are the black spots? Uh, I think we all know where the black spots are. I mean, wherever you live, probably within half a mile, there's a black spot. But certainly in central Queens Road, central around IFC, uh, Wyndham Street, that's, that's around there. Then, of course, uh, you know, in Chim Chow Choi, in, well, I, I would say everywhere, but I think the black spots are very easy to identify. And perhaps the police have identified some, but they have this kind of scattergun, haphazard approach. OK, we'll ticket this district today and we'll come back in a month. And the second they leave, as they did IFC uh, last week, they gave thousands of tickets around there. Then they left and I went down there on my bike afterwards and it's like nothing ever happened because the ticket is a minor, minor penalty. Mm. They need to be clamping, to be honest. They need to actually make make parking enforcement to be inconvenient to drivers, otherwise they're not going to get anywhere. Okay, uh, on that subject, uh, a message on our Facebook page from Mervyn says that the only way to deal with illegal parking is to adopt the approach taken in London being that once you've been given a parking ticket, you cannot move the vehicle and it's towed off to, uh, to, to a far off location. You can't retrieve the vehicle until uh, after paying off the fine, uh, towing charge and storage charge. Um, 
Yeah. You, That's what you, I just you, said. You, yeah, you, perfect. You would certainly agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, the problem yeah. is the law. You know, we'd actually need a law change to do that. Mm. And I don't know how many of the new executive, uh, the new election committee, for example, drive cars or have these boss vans or alphards, but I'd be interested to know the number and whether these people would really understand this issue from a driver perspective or from a you know, pedestrian or a perspective. But, you know, the government is not uh, really uh, trying to reduce the number of cars. Uh, they are continuing to issue, you know, new car registrations. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, they, they welcome cars to Hong Kong. But on the other hand, there are no, not enough car parks anywhere. Uh, definitely not enough. So what, what should we do? Well, we've got to think about a moratorium on new car registrations. We cannot keep going at this rate because we've, I think the government took its eye off the ball regarding new car registrations for the last decade. Um, and everything was going great decade ago. The traffic was so-so, parking was so-so. They've just completely abandoned it, it seems. And I think we've got to do what Singapore does or maybe what Beijing does and have some sort of moratorium or some sort of way to stop the growth in new cars. We can't just keep registering these new things. And I, I think the 2035 uh, limit on petrol and diesel cars may have some impact. But, you know, shifting to EVs doesn't really help us with the parking or congestion situation. OK, another email from Din says, uh, do the police prioritise illegal passing enforcement priorities should be pavement and passing place parking, actual obstruction and disabled spaces, not expired metres or spaces which cause no actual obstruction to other road users. Is there any, um, is there any sort of uh, prioritisation? Yeah, I have a lot of arguments with police on the street about this because they do have prioritisation. It's called STEP, Selective Traffic Enforcement Priorities. But STEP targets keeping the road clear. That's its main priority. So if you're parked 100% on the pavement and all the pedestrians are blocked and have to walk in the road, that's not covered under STEP. So I would urge the police to consider what that uh, gentleman or, or lady just said on the email there consider the pavements as important rights of way and keep those clear as a priority. Yes, indeed. OK, uh, and another one. Geoffrey uh, writes, uh, the police have always been allowed in and in some cases uh, do put more than one ticket on illegally parked vehicles. But what I want to bring to the attention is to is the discrimination against motorcycles and the police incompetence in proper enforcement, specifically abandoned motorcycles being left for over a year, and the 24-hour rule on motorcycle spaces not being enforced. If this was better enforced, those uh, oversight parking bikes will need to establish a proper paid parking location and would then stop forcing motorcycles to park in undesirable locations such as back alleys and under bridges. This is a form of force majeure. Another cause is the unwillingness of car parks to have motorcycle spaces, which is an ongoing issue that is escalating. If the clampdown on this double standard and incompetence continues, then motorcycles will just park on the streets rather than out of the way, since they have no choice. Uh, yeah, James Ockenden, I've seen quite a lot of complaints from uh, motorcyclists lately yeah. about not being about uh, lack of parking spaces, especially in town. Yeah, that's a, yeah. it's a huge issue, and the, the police do indeed rarely clear out the, uh, the the abandoned motorcycles, and they do seem to target motorcycles for tickets. I think perhaps they're easy targets; they don't fight back. Uh, whereas a car with a with a driver in it is going to cause you know argue and and give them sticks. So yes, the motorcycles and bicycles as well. We had the same problem with bicycle. Parking. Parking. A lot of car parks don't have bicycle parking in them. Uh, you can't really leave your bicycle anywhere without it either getting smashed up by a trolley delivery or 
nabbed by uh, a policeman. So I think two wheels, we've got, to, we've got to think carefully about how we want to have two wheels in this city and do we want to encourage that? And of course we do because bikes take up much less space, much less pollution and are very good for getting around the city. OK, uh, we had a caller on just now. He didn't stay on the line, but, uh, but left a question. Says that This was from Dennis. Said, uh, if a car is blocking the road, what's the point of clamping the car? Well... Well, yeah, if it's actually blocking the road, I don't think they'd, they'd clamp it. But if it's in a position where it's illegally parked or causing a danger for pedestrians and clamping it, and then the idea is it's clamped so it can't be moved and then towed away quite quickly. So you need the whole infrastructure in there, which is what London did. You need the tow trucks out there ready to come and get it and take it away and cause that inconvenience to the drivers, which will then change their behaviour. Mm. Um, so, James, for the short term, uh, in, you know, apart from multiple tickets, which we don't see very often, you know, what are the more effective measures, you think, to... Um reduce illegal parking is there any i think short term we're in trouble we've got to just keep doing what i think what damon Hour is doing is mass ticketing just keep ramping that up but i think even if we double the number of tickets or triple it it's not really going to have an effect we've really got to look at a slightly more medium-term strategy of reducing the number of cars on the road promoting walking promoting cycling and two wheels Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, James Ockenden, uh, founder and editor of Transit Jam and producer of the radio show Wham Bam Tram, thank you very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. And uh, just before we go, uh, a couple more emails. Uh, let me see. Uh, this one's just come in from uh, David. It says, uh, uh, would be more appropriate to put the planning department on the streets and see where you could put extra parking slots and rearrange the way... Uh, cars park so they don't cause obstructions giving tickets does not solve the problem um uh, and also says uh, this is really going to annoy it doesn't actually say annoy but this is really going to annoy uh, van drivers uh, loading and unloading if you clamp them uh and also uh david says uh, first question would be uh okay this is over our uh, this is on our previous uh, main topic about uh, protecting um, uh, children from abuse. Uh, first question would be, uh, were the parents ever educated in childcare by the hospital? If not, why not? Secondly, if the child went to kindergarten, surely the teachers and care helpers must have seen marks or mannerism uh, with the child. And thirdly, uh, were the childcare workers and social workers doing their job properly and young kids when they are very young quite often do talk once they have confidence with their teacher okay um thank you very much uh, to uh, all our guests this morning and uh one last email here actually says uh okay um, after years of listening to Backchat every weekday morning, I've just switched off. I'm sure others have done the same. In the space of just a couple of weeks, the show's quality has plummeted. How sad. Oh, well, Ada, we can't, can't please everybody. But uh, uh, thank you very much to you this morning as our co-host. And a uh, quick look at the weather before we go. Um, sunny periods, uh, isolated showers and thunderstorms, very hot during the day, top temperature will be around 33 degrees, light winds, the outlook, sunny intervals and isolated showers on the day following the mid-autumn festival, which must be tomorrow I suppose, with winds freshening later, cloudier with a few showers in the latter part of this week, it's currently 30 degrees, humidity 75%, the very hot weather warning is in effect. Remember when the MTR services were suspended because a sky lantern hit the tracks? Sky lanterns can be hazardous. 
because we have no control over where they might go. They can cause fires, including hill fires, jeopardize flight safety, cause personal injuries, or damage property when they land. Any person who releases a lit sky lantern might even commit an offense. Please put safety first and refrain from flying a sky lantern. Now the new summary with Todd Harding. The doctor in charge of a vaccination centre in Jordan says he expects vaccination rates to pick up when everyone aged 12 and above is able to get a jab without a booking. From tomorrow, people can walk in to 21 community vaccination centres to get a jab. Dr Samuel Kwok said the capacity of his Kunchung centre was 2,000 a day, but fewer than 1,000 people were turning up for inoculation. The United States has announced plans to ease tough air travel restrictions imposed 18 months ago to try to control the pandemic. Fully vaccinated travellers from Brazil, China, India and many European nations will be able to board flights from early November. And Canadians are voting for the second time in less than two years to elect a new government. The Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, called the snap vote, hoping to capitalise on overseeing the COVID-19 vaccine programme. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. And by oh so shy, quiet and retiring doggy council, co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Decide of what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you, and welcome to Tuesday, here on The Morning Brew, with me, Phil Whelan. Tuesday means kind of Aussie day. We're going to be looking down under with Jared Watt at 10.40, all the news that's fit to broadcast, and three more great Aussie bands. So after 11, we're going to discover a little about Hong Kong's butterflies with Dr. Merrin Pierce and Ling Yut Fong, who's the lepidopterologist and a PhD candidate at Hong Kong U. Let's just say a butterfly expert. We'll be on Facebook Live for that one because I'm sure we've got some cool pictures to show you. 11.40, James Ross presents part two of five of Music of My Life. All this week, he'll be chatting with legendary music manager Miles Copeland who also advised the Pentagon at one point. Miles picks all the songs that are special to him. After 12, our weekly visit to Melbourne for a chat with biz futurist Maurice Misalowski. Today he's going to talk about visionaries, past and present, as 1980s inventor Clive Sinclair passed away a few days ago, and I was wondering how many ZX81s would fit into one iPhone. It's probably millions. And today, of course, is the birthday of the maestro H.G. Wells. <laughs> 